I mean, my, my whole mission in life is to provide healing. That's Scarlett Lewis, founder of the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement. I want to prepare you for an interview that may cover some tender terrain. In this interview, Scarlett shares about her path to forgiveness and service, motherhood and social change through possibly the most painful experience a parent can have. This is the Supergivers Podcast. We talk about like, what is it to be affected by anything, right? Like we're all, we're all directly affected uh, if we're alive, right? So, so I, I guess what I would say is I have several people in Connecticut who felt you know, more closely resonant with the effects. And so it feels really personal and, and close to my heart to talk to you on a number of levels. I'm also a parent of a, of a young boy who's about to go into kindergarten and, and we're at the, in the stage of kind of considering different school options and gosh, there's just so much to consider. Everyone's thinking about it. Everyone's yeah. thinking the number one priority is school safety. And, and I learned that parents, as parents, we're responsible for our children's safety when they're in school. Mm. We are. So I, I think if I, if I regret anything, it's not being more involved and understanding more. I really thought uh, as a parent, you know, I, I'm, my job is to clothe, feed, bathe, uh, play with, love unconditionally. Um, and then I send them to school and, and they have certain responsibilities. And what I realize is those lines are crossed a lot. And uh, bottom line is when I sent my child to school that day, I was responsible for his safety. And I knew instinctively that what happened was 100% preventable. And because I know that, and because I know how to prevent it, I dedicated my entire life. I live, sleep, eat, breathe, being part of the solution to the issues that we're seeing, not only in our schools today, but then that translate out into society because we know that they don't stop when kids graduate. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and when I saw the problems that we're facing, and by the way, they're the same problems that you experienced when you were in school and I experienced, they're just exponentially worse now. Um, we have all these ec epidemics going on. I didn't even realize this until I started studying it. It's not just violence and, and extreme bullying, um, but it's, there's a mental health epidemic where 49.5% of our U.S. youth will have had a diagnosable mental illness by the time they're 18. Uh, the majority of that diagnosis is anxiety. The average onset age for anxiety is six years old. And we know that around 70% of those kids will not get professional help, so they suffer alone. Uh, and when, it's so interesting when you look at the long-term outcomes of untreated anxiety, they're exactly what we're seeing in our schools and in our society. So it's violence and substance abuse and, and mental health issues, uh, incarceration, homelessness. Um, we have a substance abuse issue, right? That uh, 70,000 uh, died last year from drug overdose and that number is just expected to increase. And this is despite what is seemingly our best efforts, right? Because <laughs> it's not like we don't know about it. It's not like anybody wants suffering to go on. We would all like to see it stop, and yet it continues to increase. Um, we have an epidemic of loneliness. 
Uh, and we know through science how deleterious feeling lonely is. Yet when you think about what loneliness is, it's not really that you're alone. It's that you're perceiving your environment to, to, to be alone, to, to be uh, singular. Uh, you, can, you can be lonely and be in a group of a thousand people, or you can be at home and not feel alone and be alone. It's uh, right up here. It's our thought process, and that's a lot about what our program, the Choose Love Enrichment Program, teaches. It's what social-emotional learning teaches. It's, uh, it's so important. Yeah, so, so having a background in developmental psychology, as, as I do, and having a son who, like I said, is, is about to transition into that world, yeah. the most important thing to me has always been social-emotional development for him above yeah. anything academic. I don't really ah, care. I think it will come. Right. Yes. So what I'm curious about is if you can describe back up a little bit and describe how how the Choose Love movement addresses social emotional learning, social and emotional learning for kids in schools. I know it's it goes beyond schools. But let's just start there. So uh, a lot of the, the scientific research that's been done on social emotional learning has been done through the collaborative for academic social emotional learning and uh, they have a wheel uh, and there are spokes on the wheel and there are five core components of social emotional learning that they have researched thoroughly and the five components are self-awareness social awareness responsible decision making healthy relationships and emotional management. And then the wheel, those five core components, which by the way, our program includes and highlights. Uh, and then in addition to that, there's a circle around the spokes that talks about having those, those uh, five core components taught in classrooms and whole schools. Then there's another uh, layer that talks about those components being taught in the home. Uh, interestingly enough, and what I learned um, following uh, my son's murder when I wanted to be a part of the solution was that these skills and tools that we're talking about, these essential life skills is what they're called, 21st century life skills, they actually have to be taught. And if you didn't learn them from your parents at home and or in a classroom, you don't necessarily have them. And it was really interesting. I was 44 years old when Jesse was murdered and I wanted to be a part of the solution. I learned about social emotional learning and how it proactively prevents violence and bullying, um, which was a big part of what happened at Sandy Hook and all the other uh, proactive prevention that it does. And I realized I don't have these skills and tools. And so I learned them as an adult. So I'm kind of like living proof that you can learn them at any age and they can exponentially benefit you in every aspect of your life. Well, what I'm really struck by with, you know, please tell me if I'm misinterpreting, but some, some element of what you're doing seems like it connects with an empathy for, in this case, a school shooter. Because you're, you're, in a way, you're looking to reach out to that type of kid, aren't you? Absolutely. Yeah. Social emotional learning is for everyone. And, you know, you, you mentioned uh, empathy for the shooter. When that tragedy happened with me, I knew instinctively that that young man, former student of Sandy Hook Elementary School, whose mother was a teacher at the school, by the way, 
must have been in a tremendous amount of pain in order to do that. In fact, one of the greatest lessons that I've learned in the past six years since my personal tragedy is that there are only two kinds of people in this world. There are good people, good people like you and I and your listeners that are really trying to be part of the solution and get to the root of the problem. And, and then there are good people in pain. And, and that is a hopeful statement because there's always something that we can do to help ease another's pain. And so Adam was in such a tremendous amount of pain, not, not just pain, but he suffered such severe neglect, which uh, I really feel like is the worst form of bullying. Um, and, and when I look at how he literally cried out for help, waved big red flags. Um, kids, don't, kids don't sit in a classroom and raise their hand and say, excuse me, excuse me, um, I'm having thoughts of self-harm and harming others. Could you please make an appointment at a psychiatrist at your earliest convenience? You know, they will, they will say things, they will do things, they will act out, they'll post things. And Adam did those things. And, uh, and he never got the help that he needed and that was known that he needed. And so in, in that regard, I feel a tremendous amount of compassion for him and for his pain. In fact, I have said uh, since the beginning that there were 28 victims at Sandy Hook. And, and I include Adam Lanza and his mother uh, as, as part of that number. And that's not a tremendously popular thing to say. Um, However, um, I think that when something goes wrong in our life, as, as human beings, we have a tendency to say, uh, well, whose fault is it, right? And, uh, and I looked at the definition of blame, because of course everybody blames, uh, blamed Adam and his mom, Adam who perpetrated the crime and his mother who gave him the guns and, or gave access to the guns. And I thought of the definition of blame, which is the assignment of pain and responsibility onto something, onto somebody else. And I thought, wow, wouldn't it be so easy if it really was all Adam and his mother's fault? Now, now by the way, I'm not saying he's not responsible. He's absolutely responsible. I'm certainly not saying what he did was okay. Obviously, my son's dead. Um, but what I am saying is that if it really was all their fault, it would never have happened before and it would never happen again. But wait a minute, it happened so many times before and it's become commonplace in our country now. So it can't be all their fault. So then whose fault is it if we're trying to assign blame? And I realized early on, wow, I, I guess I have to take my part of the responsibility for what happened to my son that day, because it's in doing that, that I take my personal power back and I can become part of the solution and not another victim of Adam Lanza, because I could certainly have become that as well. Yeah. Accountability is freeing, right? But I looked at Nancy Lanza and I identified with her actually. I mean, she was a single mother. She had a, 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 a child that needed special services that he wasn't given. And it was all on her. He had aged out. He was living in the basement for a year and a half. She had no help. She had no idea what to do. How old and, was he? Uh, he I think he was 21. 
Okay. Yeah. So he was not functioning yeah. and uh, she had no help. And so I felt compassion for her. And, uh, and of course, Adam, you look throughout his life and he waved big red flags. He, 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 he uh, for instance, when he was in fifth grade, he wrote a book called the book of granny. And this book is about a witch that comes to the school with a broomstick that opens into a semi-automatic weapon and she murders children. And the story is all about murdering children, expressing what's in his head. And what's he saying? He's saying, this is what's in my head. Is this normal? Um, You know, if it's not help and uh, no one did anything, they took that story and uh, they took it from him because he had actually handwritten copies and brought it to school to sell, but he never got help. And, uh, and, and because of that, I feel compassion for them. And, and there's a, there is a lot of anger for them. And, and I, I've realized, you know, through forgiveness that forgiveness doesn't mean forgive and forget because I'll never forget. It doesn't mean, uh, you know, just, just not holding somebody accountable for their actions because we're all accountable for our actions and our inactions. It simply means cutting the cord that attaches you to pain and taking your personal power back. I love that. I love that. So your program's in a bunch of schools and related to what you're talking about, I'm curious to know how administration and teachers have received it. Cause you're essentially saying like, and I happen to agree with you, but if I'm playing devil's advocate, you're saying I'm pointing out a gaping void in the needs of your culture, of your leadership, of your whole system, right? And how are, how are people receiving this? So what are you, what are you coming up against um, both, both the, the receiving end and the possibly the resistance end? Well, first of all, I want to say that educators are superheroes. They really are. Um, and I don't think I realized that six years ago before the tragedy. I realize it now, crisscrossing the United States and working directly one-on-one with them. They are superheroes. They do so much. Um, they have the most important job in the entire world. Uh, we, as parents, we give them our most precious asset for the majority of the day, and we ask them to help shape and mold them into the human beings they're going to become. There is no more important job. And so I just want to say that first and foremost, uh, educators are super heroes. They have the hardest job <laughs> on the face of the planet, which happens to also be the most important. And uh, with, with that being said, um, we ask so much of them. And a lot of the resistance that I get is that there's just no time. And, uh, and it's true. If you look at an educator's day, they have every minute laid out for them and more minutes than they have time for in the day. Um, however, it's, it's really vitally important that we prioritize proactive prevention or we are never going to get ahead of the issues that plague us and that our kids are dying from uh, suicide and depression. Um, we know that social emotional learning is proactive prevention. And it's interesting. What I've learned over the last six years is that it takes a tremendous amount of courage to adopt a proactive preventative approach because what we're used to doing is, and this is through our negative bias, by the way. So we, we all have this negative bias. We focus on the negative and we do that for a reason. Um, we do that to keep ourselves safe. And we've done that 
always. But the issue here is that there are no saber-toothed tigers anymore. And uh, I'm not saying it's not really, really important to be aware. But what I'm saying is that because of our negative bias, we focus on the problem. And when you focus on something, it grows. So what we've been doing is focusing on, let's say, bullying. Um, we've been focusing on the issue. We create laws around it. We, we make sure everybody knows the definition of it. Um, instead of focusing on proactive prevention, teaching kids how to have healthy and positive relationships, how to connect with each other in meaningful ways, how to, how to skills and tools for resilience to, to overcome the issues that we know that they're going to face, how to manage their emotions, right? Because, because as human beings, we're all connected in the want and need to love and be loved. We're all the same in that. And, and by the way, kids are no different than teachers, are no different than parents. Uh, we all want to love and be loved. And frankly, to make everything very simple, some of what we're seeing is lack of love. And what our program teaches is that love is a choice. We can actually choose love as a thoughtful response in every situation, circumstance, and interaction. When you choose love, that's kindness, caring, concern. Um, it feels good. Uh, and, and that is reflected in your behavior usually. When you're happy and you feel good, that's reflected in your behavior. When you react in anger, hatred, and revenge, uh, it feels bad. And that's also reflected in our interactions. So um, it's, it's vitally important that we focus on this proactive preventative approach. And by the way, I'll just mention the decades of research behind social emotional learning. This is why I love my new job <laughs> because you don't have to take my word for it. You can look at the decades of research behind social and emotional learning in those five core components that I talked about and how kids that have social emotional learning in their classrooms get better grades and test scores. They have higher attendance, higher graduation rates, less stress and anxiety, less behavioral issues, stronger connections, less bullying. It's a statistically effective way to reduce bullying. And I said decades. So now they've followed kids that have had social emotional learning in kindergarten all the way through adulthood. What have they found? It stays with you. They found that kids that had social emotional learning in kindergarten, they have less substance abuse, less stress and anxiety, less mental illness of all kinds, and less incarceration, even less divorce rates. So for somebody who doesn't know what that looks like practically, can you walk us through what social emotional learning would look like in a school if they're coming and the program's being introduced for the first time? How does it translate that day? Sure. Well, most schools are teaching the program once a week. Um, that's how much time they're allotting, allotting for it. Um, uh, like you really want social emotional learning to become the culture of the school because it's the number one way to improve climate and culture in a school. So you really want it to, <clears throat> excuse me, become the vernacular, uh, how kids talk, how they think, how they make decisions. 
Um, but uh, so, so say once a week and say in elementary school, you would have circle time and you would teach a lesson. Uh, our, our program uh, teaches how to choose love as a formula. So we have this formula for choosing love and the formula focuses on four character values and then all five of those core social emotional learning components are taught within those four character values, including other, other really important topics like positive psychology, character values, emotional intelligence. It's circle time and it's usually uh, schools a lot between 20 and 40 minutes per week. And you would just be teaching about courage. Uh, courage is like a muscle. Um, you have to be aware that you have it and then you practice it. So we have mindfulness exercises. So kids would sit around in a circle, they'd put their hand on their heart and another hand on their belly, and they would practice deep breathing, thinking about courage. And, uh, and, and those are their brave breaths. And that's actually one of the, one of the favorite things about the program. And we've actually had, so, so you can teach courage and literally you can cultivate it in kids. There's research that shows that when you have courage to stand up in a bullying situation, that, that bullying behavior usually stops within 10 seconds. And we've had kids that have resolved their own issues on the playground and, and in some cases even befriend their bullies. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say, it, I know it's really important for you, it sounds like, to have the empiricism and I can understand that that's really important, especially dealing with public schools and government type entities. So in any form, empirical or otherwise, anecdotal, what is the feedback that you've gotten over the years in terms of how it's impacting the schools and the individuals? So we are in the process of a formal evaluation mm -hmm. now, um, but anecdotally, and I travel all over the country visiting schools that have launched the program. Anecdotally, the, the feedback has been absolutely tremendous. Uh, there have been some schools that have brought it in because they've been impacted by trauma. And uh, they've, they've said that it's transformed lives, um, taught just, you know, incredible uh, character education and values and situations that it was really needed. Um, my favorite feedback is from educators that have said that they are learning the skills and tools themselves and taking it home and using it with their kids uh, and in their work situations. Um, we've had one student uh, that attempted suicide and came, was hospitalized, came back to school, learned the formula for choosing love and said that it saved his life. Wow. Um, we've had educators that have said they were thinking about leaving the field of education and because of the Choose Love program, they've stayed and have renewed vigor for what they're doing. So the, the feedback has been incredible. We have surveys, we, we send out surveys at the end of each year. We also actually include surveys, which is each of the grade levels, but our survey results have been phenomenal. Um, like 99% of educators seeing improvement in behavior and 66% seeing improvement in grades and test scores. Um, the, these results are on our website. Uh, they're pretty amazing. And um, 
this is, you know, teaching social and emotional learning and taking the time to do that. And, you know, when you understand that uh, social emotional learning can proactively prevent, reduce and prevent a lot of the suffering that we're experiencing in schools that then translates out into our society, there's absolutely no excuse to not do it. And I will say for the last two years, I've been saying that social emotional learning is the number one way to have a safe school. And then I joke and I say, uh, I'll answer for the audience and, and I'll say, what, what is she talking about? Wait a minute. What about all those external safety measures like uh, active shooter protocol and door locks and single point entries and arming or not arming school resource officers? What about that? Well, those external safety measures are incredibly important. I'm not saying that they're not, but none of those external safety measures address the cause of why a child would want to come into a school and harm themselves or someone else. Really, within a school setting, the only thing that does is teaching kids character education and social and emotional learning. So I've been saying this for two years, knowing, by the way, that social emotional learning would have saved my son's life. The Sandy Hook Advisory Commission, uh, which was responsible for finding out how something like Sandy Hook could happen and what we could do to make sure it doesn't happen again. They were given unprecedented access to everything Sandy Hook. They took two years. They came out with this report and came up with three things in no particular order. More access to mental health, gun safety, and social emotional learning. In fact, the report says every school pre-K through 12th grade should have a comprehensive year-long social and emotional learning program taught with fidelity. So I had been talking about that. Well, in December, the Federal Commission on School Safety released their final report, and guess what it starts with? Proactive prevention, uh, character education, and social and emotional learning. Yeah, must be really validating. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's so validating. In fact, I'm here in New Hampshire, um, attending Governor Sununu's inauguration. Governor Sununu is this courageous leader who, six months ago, was the first governor to release his statewide school safety initiative. By the way, all governors are working on them, and he focused on social and emotional learning, and he used the Choose Love Enrichment Program as the backbone of support. Mm -hmm. um, for his statewide school safety initiative. So this is interesting because now we've taken the conversation from about social emotional learning from a kind of a nice to have when we have time, if we have time mm -hmm. to an absolutely essential part of school safety. And central part of child development. And the, the point that I want to drive home that if it isn't obvious enough, part of what I appreciate about where you're coming from is that even though it sometimes takes us these horrible instances to identify needs, your program is really seeking to um, supply something that is independent of whether or not there was a shooting or not. This is about just up-leveling the ability to create character and culture in our nation's youth who eventually will become up and become adults and become leaders. And that that's always been there and that always will be there, that need, however it looks. So while your impetus was, was obviously really personal and painful, um, it's, it's not about school shootings. It's about being able to do better for our kids, isn't it? Well, look, uh, 
you've probably seen the latest headlines that have come out um, in the employment area. Uh, Top employers are looking for employees that have high EQ, so Mm -hmm. emotional intelligence, social and emotional intelligence over IQ. And why are they doing that? Because they know, and the latest research shows, that employees with higher social and emotional intelligence get along better, work better in groups, they're more creative, Mm -hmm. they're better decision makers. All these things, by the way, that, that kids experience, this is what our employers are looking for now. And I have colleges calling me, asking me to develop a program, multiple colleges, by the way, asking me to develop a program for incoming freshmen because they say, look, these kids are so smart. They have the grades and test scores to get into college, but they don't necessarily have the social and emotional intelligence to stay in or to take advantage of everything that we have to offer. Let's talk about dysfunction in a family. There's research that shows that dysfunction, which a lot of us have, (laughs) can go out seven generations, Mm -hmm. right? I don't know any other way to break the cycle of dysfunction other than teaching kids social and emotional intelligence. And let's just talk really quickly about our tax bill. Um, it's, I, I also say it's the number one way to reduce our tax bill because think about the estimate out of the White House for the, the latest opioid epidemic. I think the estimate was tens of billions of dollars to treat the symptoms, by the way. And how about spending a fraction of that to reduce and prevent the suffering before it starts? Because remember, kids that have social emotional learning have less substance abuse. There was also uh, uh, research that came out of Columbia University um, that showed that for every dollar we invest in social emotional learning, there is an $11 net present value return to the community. So what we're talking about actually makes money for the community. So 100% of everything that's come out and the research that continues to come out is positive about teaching character values and social emotional learning in every way. It is the future of education. And I have to tell you that I have experienced a huge shift since I started uh, six years ago, really dedicating my life to making sure that every child has access. So six years ago, I would go out and people would say, oh, what, what exactly is that? We haven't really heard about it. Now, everyone's heard about it. They know that it's something that they should be focusing on. Uh, sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And I really think that um, it's up to all of us, right? Because we know now that there is no... Uh, politician or anyone that's going to come in and fix these problems for us. Look, these are problems that have been around for a long time and they're simply getting worse. It is going to take every single one of us taking responsibility and being part of the solution. And, and, you know, we're all anxious about what we're seeing in schools and in our society. And the opposite of anxiety is action. And there is something, we're we're all wanting to do something. So there is something that we can do. And I created the Choose Love movement as a way for everyone to come together to be part of the solution. So it doesn't matter what political party you're from, what your view on guns or no guns is, it doesn't matter. We're all connected as human beings in the want and need 
to love and be loved. And so this program literally teaches kids how to choose love for themselves. And, uh, and so as parents, um, Ask your school if they have a comprehensive social emotional learning program. If they don't say, oh my gosh, I just heard this woman talking on Jesse's show and uh, she's got a program that's no cost. Uh, you know, why don't you check it out? But you really don't stop until you get an answer. And if you're an educator, you are free to download the program on our website. It's no cost. Download it. And even if you don't have support from your administration, you can start teaching it in your classroom. And by the way, we've seen that word spreads. By the way, this whole movement has spread by word of mouth. We're now being taught in just two and a half years in every state. We've been downloaded multiple times in over 68 countries. We're positively impacting over a million kids. And that's by word of mouth. And that, to me, proves that what we're doing is filling a need. Clearly. Well, I want to just ask you something a, a little bit back from where we were. Uh, sure. you're, on a, you're on a roll with this stuff and we'll come back to it. <laughs> so I want to know what your personal work was like after your son died and you faced whatever reality you were going through. <clears throat> yeah, so... Obviously, my personal work started, I will say, at the firehouse um, because we, all the parents, all the parents of the Sandy Hook kids were called to this firehouse that's at the end of the cul-de-sac and Sandy Hook Elementary School was at the end of the cul-de-sac and we were called there that day to uh, get our children and uh, I was at work. I'm a single mom and, you know, I heard that there had been a shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School and honestly... I wasn't really that concerned because nothing can ever happen to your kid. I mean, nothing that doesn't happen to you. It happens to people who are on the cover of people magazine, but not in, not in pastoral quiet Sandy hook in the middle of Connecticut with stone walls and trees. And uh, so I, I left work to go get Jesse and I got to the school. I was more concerned when I got to the school because I have a long commute. By the time I got there, I had to park half a mile away. And, uh, and a lot of the kids had already been rounded up and taken home. So there were obviously many of us that were there um, without our kids. And we were told, you know what, just wait because, you know, we're still sweeping the school and re-sweeping and we're finding kids. And I thought, oh yeah, Jesse, he's, he is so, uh, scrappy. I bet he's got, you know, a whole contingent of kids and he's probably run out to the woods and it's going to take him a while to find them. In the meantime, my 12 year old son, uh, was attending middle school in the same town. And he texts me cause everybody knows what's going on now via text. And he's, they were in lockdown and he said, mom, can I come wait with you at the school or at the firehouse? And I thought, well, absolutely, because when they find Jesse, he's going to want his big brother there. And, you know, maybe we'll go out to dinner. <laughs> he might be upset. Who knows? You know, these were the thoughts that were running through my head uh, with helicopters flying overhead. And there's first, you know, there are army men and all sorts of first responders and sirens. And um, so my mom actually lives in town and my stepfather and they went and picked up JT and brought him to the firehouse. So here I've brought my 12-year-old son into the most chaotic day of my life. And 
as, as the day is progressing, I have a policeman coming up and saying, did your son have any identifying marks on his body? And I'm thinking so many thoughts like, oh, that's not a good sign. Oh yeah, he had a mole on his was left foot or top of his left foot or right foot. And then another policeman would come over and say, what was the, do you remember what your son was wearing? Do you have a recent picture? And so this whole time I'm thinking about JT and I'm thinking about how he's watching every move that I make, every word that comes out of my mouth, every gesture. And I am teaching him by how I respond in this situation, how to respond to difficulty, challenges, all the way up to trauma for the rest of his life. And I thought in the moment, because I, I did practice being present um, before this, I thought I need to model strength and courage for him. And, uh, and it really helped me. And I, I've had that thought. Um, modeling behavior is so vitally important. But I started that day at the firehouse. And, uh, and then, of course, we found out that um, Jesse had been murdered alongside 19 of his first grade classmates and six educators and one of the worst mass murders in U.S. history. Uh, but we found out that Jesse um, had been a hero that day. Uh, he had been instrumental in saving nine of his classmates' lives at six years old before losing his own. And, uh, and I, I think about that courage a lot. In fact, I, I wake up with that thought of courage. And I think if at six years old, Jesse could have done that, laid down his life for his friends, which is the ultimate act of courage, I certainly can get up and speak out, travel, meet people, be part of the solution, speak the truth that I know would have saved his life. And so that's, that's really what's helped me in the past six years. And, and here's the other thing. Um, we were blessed in Sandy Hook because it was, uh, I mean, it sounds kind of uh, oxymoron-ish, but um, because it was such a big tragedy, we had people from all over the world coming in to provide um, trauma treatment. And very quickly, I realized there, there are another two kind of people. There are people that say, wow, yeah, absolutely. I'll give it a try. It can't hurt, right? And uh, every little thing that I try might help. And uh, then there are people that think in a more fearful way, um, well, what if it doesn't work on me? But thankfully, I was the type of person that just had uh, kind of an open mind about everyone that came in. And I really did try a lot of trauma treatments. And I continue to this day to use several of them. Um, and there's one, I'm actually staying at my therapist's house now in New Hampshire. Um, she treated me days after the tragedy. And uh, she actually is now the New Hampshire Choose Love Movement Coordinator. <laughs> so it's amazing uh, how things progress. But um, I still get MNRI from her. It's, uh, uh, I don't know what the, the acronym is for, but it's an incredible energy-based treatment where you just lay on a, on a, a bench and um, she 
presses on different parts of your body that relate to your amygdala to tell you that you're safe. Um, The other thing that I tried is called brain spotting. Mm. And uh, brain spotting is interesting. Um, This uh, doctor, Dr. David Grand, was noticing when his patients were doing EMDR uh, that their eyes would flicker in one point. And then he realized, oh, that's where their trauma is. So he actually works directly from the point of trauma in your brain and uses the brain to heal itself. It sounds really cool, and it is really cool, and I continue to do that to this day. The other thing that I do is tapping. And I don't know if you've heard of emotional freedom technique, mm-hmm. but Nick um, Ortner, who's the president of the Tapping Solution, lives in Newtown. So he actually came to my house days after the shooting and mm-hmm. sat down and tapped with JT and I. And I remember, first of all, feeling relief mm-hmm. within 10 minutes of doing this easy technique. I felt relief from... if. I mean, some people say they can't imagine what I was feeling. Um, it, the pain was so deep, but it gave me relief. And even as I'm sitting on the couch, I'm going, wow, if kids could learn this, this trauma technique, where there's so much trauma now. 20 years ago, there was groundbreaking research on trauma in children called the ACEs study, Adverse Childhood Experiences. That found one in five kids was coming to school traumatized. Now we know that that number is like over 50%. So we have to address trauma in schools. And I'm sitting there on the couch thinking, wow, what an empowering technique because kids could learn this technique and it reduces pain of all kinds, by the way, physical, mental, and emotional. And it works directly with the amygdala. Kids can learn how to do this and they can be in their bedrooms tapping while their parents are, you know, whatever in, in, in any kind of uh, traumatic situation, you can use it. And so I really love that. So, so I also do Reiki. Um, and, uh, and I try to work out, but you know, there are, there are all different kinds of, of aspects to healing, walking my dogs. I love and being with my horses. I particularly love, I, Mm. I did try equine therapy, which was phenomenal and life-changing. So I think being open to, to your healing is really important and not being fear-based. I mean, ultimately I think, um, every decision we make is either, based in fear or based in love and the outcomes look vastly different, whichever you choose. So, so JT is about 18 now. He is. How have you seen this affect him as a big brother? That is a great question. So JT was devastated. Like I was, he was so angry. Um, and I understand that anger and, uh, you know, it looked like from the outside, I'm sure, looking into Sandy Hook, like we had everything being done for us and we had all the services that we could need. But really, it was JT and I home alone. Um, we hadn't heard from the school. And uh, I would go into his room and I would say, JT, do you, do you want to go to school today? And he would say no. And I would feel relief. I didn't want to send him to school because I'd sent one child to school and he didn't come home. So I finally called the school and I said, you know, I need help because I don't, I'm really ambivalent 
as to whether JT goes to school and he doesn't want to go to school. And, uh, and they suggested that he redo seventh grade. And it was December, by the way, actually now it was January. And I said, no, that is definitely not an option. Um, But we had this incredible experience where orphan genocide survivors from Rwanda, and this was through a connection through the tapping solution, reached out to JT via live Skype. So two orphan genocide survivors from was it 98? There was a genocide in Rwanda where over 1 million Tutsis were murdered by their neighboring Hutus in 100 days. These two young adults were eight years old when they had witnessed their parents and their families being murdered in front of them. And so JT uh, live Skyped with them and they said through an interpreter, JT, we heard about what happened all the way over here in Rwanda and we're so terribly sorry. We want to share our story with you and let you know that you're going to to be okay, and you're going to feel joy again. Now, remember, I'm standing behind him, and it's much different hearing it from a genocide survivor than it is from maybe a, uh, a therapist saying, you know what, in time, you know, and you're thinking, are you kidding me? <laughs> you have no idea, right? Like, you don't have a whole lot of credibility. These guys had credibility. So we listened to their stories which were so horrific, we realized they'd been through something maybe even worse than we had been through. And we heard about also how they healed. And ironically, it was through the same formula that we teach now. Um, they, uh, they finally wound up in orphanages and they started feeling a profound sense of gratitude uh, for the for the food that they were being given, for the little amount of compassion, for the safety of the walls. That strengthened them, they said, to consider forgiveness for who they call the killers. Um, They said they realized that if they didn't forgive, they may go down the same path of anger and destruction as the killers. And then they were able to step outside of their pain and suffering by sharing and find meaning in their suffering by sharing their story with other people like they were doing with JT. JT actually decided to go back to school the day after uh, that Skype. Mm. And he started an organization called Newtown Helps Rwanda. Uh, I'll never forget what he said uh, to me. He said, mom, those kids reached out to me in love and I'm going to reach back out to them and I want to raise money to send them to university. So he went back to school the next day and started an organization called Newtown Helps Rwanda. He has a website and he sold these bands for $2 each. And within a couple of months, he was able to Skype back to one of the genocide survivors and, and announced that he had raised enough money to send her to university for one year, made a personal commitment for the next three. And I'm going, oh my gosh, because you know, when you're grieving, even in mourning, everything that you do takes a little bit more effort. But I have to tell you, six years later, this has been the way that he's healed himself. Um, JT hasn't done traditional therapy, um, but uh, he hasn't done medication, um, but he's heal- he is healing himself because healing is a lifetime journey, but he's healing himself by helping others. And if you go onto his website, it's incredible what he's done. He's sent two orphan genocide survivors to university now. He's helped build self-sustaining fish ponds and poultry operations for former children soldiers in Uganda. He's helped countless severely traumatized kids in the United States. And it's so 
interesting. And I talk about this when I talk to educators because our last character value is compassion in action. And when you look at the science of the benefits to you for doing for others, it's really incredible. And, uh, and, and that's JT's story. He, he continues to move forward and uh, he actually now wants to get into politics because he sees that as a way to be part of the solution. Yeah, tell me, what, what's the best way to access your work and, and who can help and how? Well, if, if your listeners are wanting to get involved, we actually have a whole page dedicated to people across the country that want to bring the Choose Love movement into their schools, into their homes, and into their communities. We have three programs. We have a school-based program. We have a program for parents and caregivers, and we have a community program. These are all by popular demand because parents came to us and said, we want to learn this with our kids, and, and we want to learn these skills and tools ourselves, and we want to support the teachers and what they're doing in school. So we created the home program, and after we did that, I would have uh, uh, community members, and um, like I'm talking about uh, sheriffs and bank presidents and presidents of downtown associations and PTA members and uh, 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 mayors asking me, how can we get involved? We want to be part of the solution. So we created a community program as well. Um, and we also have um, an ambassador program. And there's a whole page dedicated to this. So this is where people will go and it's under the support tab. If they want to bring the Choose Love movement into their area, it's everything you need to know. It's sample emails and it's downloads that you can actually just download and take into your principal if you want to. Um, there's training on that website so you can speak the language and be confident when you go in. So um, we've really done a, a lot and we offer a lot and that's that is how people can really be supportive is help spread the word because this whole movement is, has been by word of mouth and it's going to take every single one of us being part of the solution and doing their part to to proactively reduce and prevent the issues that we're seeing in our world today. And what's so beautiful about that to me is that it's a program that's supporting human relationship and so of course the program grows through relationship, right? And we have to be in relationship to learn about it. That's right. And it's all about connection. This, yeah. is, this is all about connection. And connection is love. Yeah. We are wired to connect with one another. But we need to have the skills and tools to do it in a healthy and meaningful way. More than ever. More than ever. Yeah. So we're about at a time. And I just want to check in to see if there's anything that we didn't get to that feels really important for you to share. Like, I'll just maybe kind of like just go through the formula really quickly because the formula for choosing love is something that we teach and it's a skill and tool that everybody should have in their belt. And this formula can lead you to choosing love in any situation, circumstance, or interaction. In fact, I've been traveling all around the world for the last six years uh, and I've spoken to every group imaginable, imaginable, including convicted felons. And I've asked the same question. Can anybody think of a situation or circumstance where you could not, where this formula would not lead you to choosing love? No one has ever raised their hand. And again, the formula is courage plus gratitude plus forgiveness 
plus compassion and action. You need to have courage to practice all three of those character values. And actually, the formula is neuroscientifically accurate. So practicing each character value neuroscientifically strengthens you to consider the other. You need courage to be grateful, especially when things aren't going your way in life. But we have to remember that it's gratitude that makes us happy, not happiness that makes us grateful. And you need courage to forgive. And I'll tell you that forgiveness is probably the most one of the most important parts of my journey. Um, we teach forgiveness. And when people heard that I was going to put forgiveness in the program, the, the, the response was, oh my gosh, forgiveness. Isn't that lofty for kids? And you know what we found? It's not lofty for kids. It's for lofty us, for us. <laughs> yeah. We don't talk about it. We're uncomfortable <laughs> with it. Nobody taught us this. I learned everything about forgiveness um, myself. And what I learned was that it's, in some cases, the only way to take your personal power back. That's my new and improved definition of forgiveness. Taking your personal power back. Cutting the cord to, that attaches you to pain. And, uh, and I, I forgave Adam, you know, very early on. But, of course, I also learned that that doesn't mean that you don't fall back into anger. And I think about Jesse's uh, seventh birthday six months later, and uh, I, was, I woke up so angry that morning, and I realized, wow, I have to take a deep breath, take a step back, and forgive again. So forgiveness starts with a choice, and then it becomes a process, and maybe one that we have to do every day. But in some cases, it's the only way to take our personal power back. And then... Of course, it takes courage to do that. And then the last character value is compassion in action. There are two components of compassion. There's the empathetic component or the identifying component when you see uh, somebody in pain or somebody that has a need. But then there's the action component. And that's when you actively do something to help ease that pain. And uh, of course, empathy can be painful. Empathy lights up the same receptors in our brain as physical pain. Um, but when we turn around and we actually do something to help ease that pain, that's where all the scientific research shows that uh, everything comes back to us in spades. So the, the amazing thing to me with choosing love is that all of the latest science, all of the latest neuroscience comes all the way back around to the importance of choosing love. There is no more important choice that we could be making than choosing love. And, and here's the thing that I, I usually end with. Um, Jesse left, you know, those three words on the kitchen chalkboard that we haven't talked about, but he wrote a message shortly before he died. Uh, he wrote, nurturing, healing, love. Now, the words were phonetically spelled because he was in first grade and just learning how to write, but um, those words are in the definition of compassion across all cultures, and they're actually the foundation for the formula for choosing love that is in the program. And... Uh, I think that, um, you know, it was uh, maybe a spiritual awareness that he had, that he wasn't going to be around for very much longer. But I believe that, uh, and, and by the way, when I saw that message, I knew instantly that if Adam Lanza had been able to give and receive nurturing, healing love, that the tragedy would never have happened. And I knew that I'd be spending the rest of my life spreading this message and true to my word, well, six years later, at least, I'm <laughs> eating and eating it every single day and, and feeling so blessed to be able to do that. Mm. Scarlett Lewis, thank you so much for being a guest. I, I have a feeling we'll cross paths again when the time is right. And thank you for the amazing work you're doing uh, in the world. Thank you so much, Jesse. To find out more about Scarlett's work, go to jessielewischooselove.org. 
And for her son JT's work with Rwandan scholarship, go to NewtownHelpsRwanda.org. This interview touches me in a personal way, as I went to public school in Connecticut, not far from Sandy Hook. To that end, I have a special offer of supergiving today. Through the end of March 2019, when you make any monetary donation to jessielewischooselove.org, I will send a personal email to the school of your choice, inviting them to consider Scarlett's free program. Once you send your donation, email me at jesse at supergivers.com with the full name and location of the school you'd like to have adopt Scarlett's program, and I will write to them. My question for you is this, who is the hardest person in your life to forgive right now? And how is your unwillingness to forgive benefiting you? This has been the Supergivers Podcast, and I'm your host and producer, Jesse Johnson. To hear past episodes, you'll find the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. If you're inspired enough to write a brief review on one of these platforms, please do. They help. You can learn more about me and my equine-based leadership work at supergivers.com. Thanks for listening.